welcome to the latest employment law podcast from the Stevenson Harvard employment team. Don't forget that you can subscribe to the whole series on iTunes and Stitcher or by visiting our website at www.shlegal.com. My name is Adam Cook and I'm an associate within the team. I have with me Anne Pritim, an employment partner in the Stevenson Harvard International Employment Group. In this month's podcast, we will discuss the key employment law changes for 2020 and therefore what businesses need to be aware of over the coming 12 months. We will look at the following. A change in the treatment of employers' national insurance contributions on relevant termination awards. Parental bereavement leave taking effect. The extension of the right to a written statement to all workers. An increase in the holiday pay reference period. Thank you, Adam. Let's start with the upcoming changes in the treatment of employers' national insurance contributions on relevant termination awards. What's the current position? In order to understand the incoming change, it's important for us to understand what has led to the current position. If an employee's employment terminated before the 6th of April 2018, the tax treatment of any payment in lieu of notice, commonly referred to as pylons, vary depending primarily on whether the employer had a contractual right to terminate immediately by paying a pylon, rather than serving notice. Broadly speaking, if the employment contract gave the employer the right to terminate the employee's employment by paying a pylon, the latter was generally subject to income tax and national insurance contributions in full. The position was different in circumstances where the employment contract did not allow the employer to terminate the employment by paying a pylon, but the employer still did so. In these situations, the pylon generally benefited from the £30,000 income tax exemption for payments made as compensation for termination of employment and could be paid free of national insurance contributions. From the 6th of April 2018, HMRC implemented changes so that all pylons would be subject to income tax and national insurance contributions in full, regardless of the contractual provisions. Therefore, as it stands, if an employee's employment terminates and the employer pays a relevant termination award to that employee, the employer must calculate how much of the relevant termination award is post-employment notice pay, or commonly referred to as PEMP. The PEMP is subject to income tax, employee and employer national insurance contributions in full. The residual balance of the relevant termination award and any statutory redundancy payment is then eligible for a £30,000 income tax exemption and blanket national insurance exemptions for both the employee and the employer. Thanks Adam. There is a rather complex calculation for PEMP which also takes into account other factors but we're not going to take you through that in this podcast. However, if you are terminating anybody's employment and you want us to do this calculation for you, regardless of whether we're actively involved in the process of the termination, we do encourage you to do so, as we do these calculations on a daily basis and the small expense of getting them correct in the first instance can avoid a really big headache if they're deemed not to be correct by HMRC further down the line. So now we know what the current position is with regard to termination payments, what's due to change next year? Well, Anne, the incoming change was meant to take place in April 2018 and then April 2019, but we definitely know now that from the 6th of April 2020, the blanket national insurance contribution will no longer be in play for employers and they will have to pay national insurance contributions on anything over the £30,000 threshold. It's also important to note as well that the relevant termination award must be paid by 5th of April 2020 in order to take advantage of the full blanket exemption. So, for example, if you finalise the settlement agreement and the termination of employment is the 5th of April 2020, but you don't make the relevant termination award payment until April's payroll, which is usually at the end of the month, HMRC will say that you need to pay your national insurance contributions on any figure over that 30,000 threshold. 
So please do make sure that any terminations and relevant payments are ultimately closed down by the end of March, or if they do drag over into the first week of April because you use a third-party payroll supplier, check with that supplier beforehand to ensure they can process a one-off payment before the end of the month. So moving on to a completely different topic, what about the introduction of parental bereavement and leave pay? Can you talk us through the incoming changes? Of course. It has been estimated that 1 in 10 employees are likely to be affected by bereavement at any one time. The death of a child can have a devastating effect on parents' physical and emotional well-being. Carefully managed, sensitive support for an employer can make a huge difference to the affected employee's experience and their successful return to work. There is currently no legal requirement in the UK for employers to provide paid leave for grieving parents. Employers have a day one right under Section 57A of the Employment Rights Act 1996 to take a reasonable amount of unpaid time off were it to deal with an emergency. This would include the death of a dependent, but there is no definition of reasonable for these purposes and it will depend on the individual circumstances. On this basis, the introduction of Parental Bereavement Pay and Leave Act in April 2020 will entitle bereaved parents to gain a statutory right to take time off from April 2020 if they are to suffer the grave misfortune of losing a child. It's important to note that this statutory right will be for primary carers, not just parents. Primary carers included doctors, foster parents and guardians, as well as more informal groups such as close friends or relatives that have taken responsibility for the child's care in the absence of the child's parents. Therefore, it's a far-reaching group of people that could be entitled to this. Parents or the primary carers will be entitled to at least two weeks' leave following the loss of a child under the age of 18 or a stillbirth after 24 weeks of pregnancy. Employees with 26 weeks continuous service will receive paid leave at the statutory rate and other staff, without the required continuous service, will be entitled to unpaid leave. Leave can either be taken in one block or in two separate blocks of one week, and it can be taken within a 56-week window from the child's death. Thank you, Adam. And practically speaking, we suggest that employers should consider having a written bereavement policy in place as this can provide certainty and security at a really, really difficult time for your employees. Employers should also be aware that details of a child's death or of any dependent's death are private under data protection legislation. So the employer should always ask the employee how much information they wish to give their colleagues, whether a more public announcement is appropriate or whether they wish to keep it private. And finally, employers should also be aware of the risk of race or religious discrimination claims that may arise from refusing requests for time off for religious observances, which may actually occur some time after the actual death. Adam, what do businesses need to know regarding the extension of the right to a written statement for all workers? For the 6th of April 2020, employers must give all workers, not just employees, a written statement of particulars from their first day of employment. This is a change from the current position under which employers must issue the statement to employees within their first two months of employment. On this basis, it really does shine a further light of the importance of having all necessary documentation ready to go before an employee commences work with the business. Employers should begin to prepare these statements at the recruitment stage, ensuring that all the required content is included and ready to be issued on the very first day of employment. And finally, Adam, as we know, the calculation of holiday pay has in recent years become a real concern for employers, with a series of cases indicating that the approach allowed under UK law, calculating holiday pay on basic pay only, did not comply with the requirements of European law. So just by way of a quick reminder, in accordance with the directive and relevant European Court of Justice decisions, workers are entitled to so-called normal remuneration when they take European statutory leave. 
This should include non-guaranteed overtime, where the employer has no obligation to offer it, but which the worker is obliged to work if requested, as well as commission that an employee may earn. It was decided that normal remuneration is that which is normally received by an employee in their pay, and payment has to be made for a sufficient period of time to justify that label of normally received. In order to calculate what an employee normally receives, employers have to look back on a preceding window of time to quantify that employee's normal remuneration. So on this basis, can you talk us through the changes for the increase in that holiday pay reference period, Adam? Certainly. In order for an employer to decide what normal remuneration is, they must look back over the preceding 12 weeks when calculating holiday pay for workers. However, from the 6th of April 2020, employers will need to look back over the past 52 weeks, discarding any weeks that a worker did not earn pay. To calculate their average weekly pay for the purposes of determining the employer's correct rate of holiday pay. This will obviously have another practical impact on employers to ensure that not only are they complying with this, but the relevant practical work is done internally in order for this information to be correct, up-to-date and easily accessible. Thanks, Adam. And please also remember that the incoming reforms to the existing IR35 regime in the private sector take effect from April 2020. Well, in theory anyway, because recent press coverage suggests that both parties are now rowing back from that as a policy. It all remains to be seen after 12th of December. Our colleagues Paul Reeves and Katie Carr spoke about those reforms in last month's podcast to help prepare businesses in the lead-up to the changes. So do listen to that important update, because at the moment it's all still on the table. And most importantly, from all of the employment team here at Stevenson Harwood, we wish you a very Merry Christmas and hope the new year brings you much joy and good fortune. Thank you for listening today and through the year. Mm-hmm.